0: Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one, titled The Lady with the Lamp by Elmer Adams and Morin Foster, tells the story of Florence Nightingale. The story first appears in a Brooklyn library periodical in 1909, and beyond that, little is known about the authors. But they tell the story well, and her story deserves to be told. Recently, one of my sons was transported to a hospital for immediate care by a Nightingale helicopter, a very appropriate name for a service that saves lives every day around the world. Florence Nightingale's story begins on May 12, 1820, in Florence, the city in which she was born and from which her parents took her name. She was raised by wealthy parents who traveled often but kept an estate at Hurst, England, where she received an excellent education. When she was growing up, she helped to take care of poor and sick people in her village, and by the age of 17, she was convinced that God wanted her to be a nurse. She started visiting hospitals in England, finding that conditions there were terrible. Doctors were doing surgeries without anesthetic, and many people who went to hospitals, for any kind of reason, were dying. In 1850, she traveled to Egypt and was the guest of two St. Vincent de Paul sisters who showed her their hospital there. The conditions there were much better managed than anything she had seen in England. Upon returning to England and with the support of her parents she studied nursing and then began to apply it in a London hospital. Her changes made a huge difference. But change never comes without someone taking the arrows as we'll see. I'd like to set the stage for you as we enter our story. In 1854 Russia invaded Turkey, and the Crimean War began, with Britain, France, and Turkey aligned against Russia. Sidney Herbert, the British war minister, asked Florence Nightingale to supervise a team of 38 nurses at the military hospital in Scutari, Turkey. And from the minute she stepped ashore, she encountered scores of injured and maimed troops fresh off the battlefield of Balaclava where the disastrous charge of the Light Brigade had just occurred. The Crimean War was in progress, France and England being allied to defend Turkey against Russian aggression. The British Army had sailed to a strange climate with shamefully poor commissary and medical staffs. The weather was stormy, and the soldiers had little shelter against it. Said a correspondent of the London Times, It is now pouring rain, the skies are black as ink. The wind is howling over the staggering tents. The trenches are turned into dikes. In the tents, the water is sometimes a foot deep. Our men have not either warm or waterproof clothing. They are out for twelve hours at a time in the trenches. And so on it went without end. Plenty of food and clothing had been shipped from England, but they never reached their destination. Some vessels were delayed. In some, the stores were packed at the bottom of the hold and couldn't be raised some hove in with the wrong goods at the wrong port and on one the consignment of boots proved to be all for the left foot but the most criminal point of mismanagement was this food clothing and medicine might be stored in a warehouse within easy reach of the army but the official with authority to deal them out would be absent and so stringent were the army rules that no one dared so much as point at them the rigid system was infinitely worse Then, no system, and the soldiers were starving in the midst of plenty and freezing under the shadow of mountains of good woolen clothing. Now, to come at once to the worst, imagine these conditions transferred to the military hospitals. In the great barrack hospital at Scutari lay two thousand sorely wounded men, and hundreds more were coming in every day. The wards were crowded to twice their capacity. The sick lay side by side on mattresses that touched each other. The floors and walls and ceilings were wet and filthy. There was no ventilation. Rats and vermin swarmed everywhere. The men lay in their uniforms, stiff with gore and covered with filth to a degree and of a kind no one could write about. It was a dreadful den of dirt, pestilence and death. It is difficult to imagine a scene of worse disorder and misery. The proportion of deaths to the whole army, from disease alone, malaria and cholera, was 60 percent. Seventy died in the hospital in one night. There was danger that the entire army would be wiped out, most of it without ever receiving a scratch from the enemy's weapons. It was in this extremity that the British nation appealed to Florence Nightingale to save the sick and wounded men, an army of 28,000 as helpless as children before the ravages of disease and to save the war. The Minister of War requested her to organize a band of nurses for Scutari, and gave her power to draw upon the government to any extent. Miss Nightingale at the time was thirty-four years old. An acquaintance described her thus, "'Simple, intellectual, sweet, full of love and benevolence. She is a fascinating and perfect woman. She is tall and pale. Her face is exceedingly lovely.' But better than all is the soul's glory that shines through every feature so exultingly. Nothing can be sweeter than her smile. It's like a sunny day in summer. Within six days from the time she accepted the post, Miss Nightingale had selected 38 nurses and departed for the seat of war. She arrived at Scutari November fourth, 1854 and walked the length of the barracks, viewing her two miles of patience. And next day, before she could form any plans... The fresh victims of another battle began to arrive. There was not space for them within the walls, and hundreds had to repose with what comfort they could in the mud outside. One of the nurses wrote, Many died immediately after being brought in. Their moans would pierce the heart, and the look of agony on those poor, dying faces will never leave my heart. But the nurse did not hesitate. She ordered the patients brought in, and directed where to lay them, and what attention they should have. She was up and around twenty hours that day, and as many the next, until a place had been found for every man, even in the corridors and on the landings of the stair. As leader of the nurses she might have confined herself to administrative tasks, of which there were enough for any woman, and stayed in the office. But no, she shrank from the sight of no operation, Many men, indeed, whose cases the surgeons thought hopeless, she nursed back to health. A visitor saw her one morning at two o'clock at the bedside of a dying soldier, lamp in hand. She was writing down his last message to the home folks, and for them, too, she took in charge his watch and trinkets, and then soothed him in his last moments, and this was but one case in thousands. She is a ministering angel, without any exaggeration, In these hospitals, wrote a correspondent of the London Times, and as the slender form glides quietly along each corridor, each poor fellow's face softens with gratitude at the sight of her. When all the medical officers have retired for the night, and silence and darkness have settled down upon the miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed alone, with lamp in hand, making her solitary rounds." In a place like Scutari, however, this kind of feminine tenderness alone would avail little. Science was needed, the most perfect skill in scientific nursing. The windows were few, and the few were mostly locked. And where one was open, the odors of decaying animals came in to pollute still more the foul air of the wards. The food for the whole hospital, for those sick of fever, cholera, wounds, and what not as well as for those in health, was cooked like an Irish stew in big kettles. Vegetables and meats were dumped in together, and when anyone felt hungry, he could dip for himself. Naturally, some got food overdone, and some got it raw. The luckiest got a mess that was scarcely palatable, and the sick could generally not eat at all. As for other matters, it has been shown how unclean the barrack wards were, how only seven shirts had been laundered in all those wretched weeks, and how the infected bed linen of all classes of patients was thrown, unsorted, into one general wash. But Florence Nightingale had spent twelve years in the hospitals of Europe to learn how to conquer just such situations as this. She had the waste and pollution outside the walls cleared away. Then she threw up the windows and set a carpenter to make more. Within ten days she had established a diet kitchen and was feeding the men each on the food his particular case demanded. She set up a laundry, too, where the garments of the sick could be cleansed in a sanitary way. All this was the easier to do, because with wise foresight she had brought the necessary articles with her on the Victus from England. The ship gave up chicken, jelly, and all manner of delicacies, and on a single day, a thousand shirts besides other clothing. In two weeks, that dreadful den of dirt, pestilence, and death had vanished, and in its place, stood a building, light and well-aired throughout, where patients lay on spotless cots, ate appetizing food from clean dishes, had their baths and their medicine at regular intervals, and never for an hour lacked any attention that would help their recovery. But after all is said of Florence Nightingale's sympathy and her science, she owed her final triumph in the Crimea to a rarer talent, that of tactful organizing and executive power, Why was she not tethered by the system and the red tape that rendered ineffectual the best efforts of medical men? Most things needful were in store not far from the barracks' hospital, but the regular physicians could not get at them. So why could she? In the first place, she had tact enough not to offend the system. The Minister of War had warned her. A number of sentimental, enthusiastic ladies turned loose into the hospital at Scutari would probably after a few days be mises a la porte, by those whose business they would interrupt, and whose authority they would dispute. Florence Nightingale did not at first interrupt or dispute anybody. She began by doing the neglected minor things, the things no one else had time for. She opened windows, she scrubbed floors and walls, she laundered shirts, she peeled potatoes and boiled soup, she bathed the patients, dosed them with medicine while the worn-out surgeons were asleep. "'read to them, and wrote letters for them. "'In those activities she asked not even supplies from the system, "'but procured them from her own ship. "'The hidebound officials were even then slow to concur. "'Perhaps they were jealous to see their own incompetence exposed. "'And there was one case, just one, where she came to blows with them. "'The hospital inmates were in desperate want, "'and the articles for their relief were nearby in a warehouse.' but the stores could not be disturbed until after inspection. Miss Nightingale tried to hasten the inspection. Failing of that, she tried to get them distributed without inspection. That also failed. My soldiers are dying, she said. I must have those stores. Whereupon she called two soldiers, marched them to the warehouse, and bade them burst open the doors. That was the kind of firm hand she could use. More often, though, she attained her ends in a peaceful way only a little feminine tact was necessary to bring together the dilatory members of a board and get them to unlock a storehouse. She was soon able to lay her hands on an abundance of anything the situation demanded. Then, besides her own small band of nurses, a large number of orderlies and common soldiers were, after a time, detailed to work under her direction. Never, she says, came from them one word or one look which a gentleman would not have used and many of them became attached to her with an almost slavish affection. And the result of her efforts justified this faith. When she arrived, the death rate was 60%. She reduced it in a few weeks to 1%. Nine of her nurses died on duty. Others were invalided home. She herself was long fever sick and near to death. But for two years she battled against disease, always in a winning fight. She conquered disease. And it is not too much to say that she conquered the Russian army and saved the war for the allies. No wonder England welcomed her home as one of the greatest heroines in all its history. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. I hope you enjoyed this story as much as I did. Florence had the right ideas, but was running into obstacles from non-believers every step of the way. People who are used to doing things the old way. She had many great qualities, but the most underreported was her executive ability to manage others and her courage to stick with her beliefs in the face of adversity. You can find both our shows at www.1001storiespodcast.com or at stitcher.com or at iTunes Podcasts or podbay.fm. Just about anywhere you look, anybody that does carry podcasts, we're there. And you're welcome to chime in at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes to let us know what you think about any given episode with over 2 million listens since that first episode back in january of last year 1001 heroes legends histories and mysteries and 1001 classic short stories have come a long way all thanks to you we appreciate your reviews and likes until next time this is your host and storyteller john hagedorn and this is our story